Welcome to the 114th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, a former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC Whiteout. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to music critiquing to self-help to song lyrics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's episode features Carrie Blakinger, the Houston Chronicle's crime and death penalty reporter, whose work is remarkable, but whose backstory is truly 100,000 times more remarkable. Or, put differently, Carrie's a former Olympic-level figure skater who became a heroin addict, then a heroin dealer, tried killing herself by leaping from a bridge, was arrested and spent two years in prison, graduated from an Ivy League school, and now devotes herself to owning the beat. So yeah, let's get to it on Two Riders, Sling and Yang. All right, Carrie, first of all, I know you're dog sitting, and I hate to take you away from Fido. <laughs> hey, I, I, I wore him out this morning. He is sleeping right now. <laughs> well, I have in front of me actually an article. It is from, you're going to like this, the March 9th, 1994 Lancaster News, Lancaster New oh Era. Oh my God. <laughs> it is after gold at Keystone Games, Lakinger <laughs> Eyes Bright Future, and it's little Carrie and pigtails staring yes. sort of eagerly at the camera and it's about this little girl who just like Oksana Bayou one day could be in the Olympics and blah, 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 blah. Um, and there was, and there are a ton of these stories obviously about you because you were yeah. very well known and well regarded and a highly rated figure skater. And I was thinking like, you would think like doing this podcast, if I was telling listeners, okay, this is good. Cause we have this woman who went from being a figure skater, like a high level figure skater to a journalist. That's really interesting. Right. And then if I was like, okay, we have this woman and she's coming on and she's the crime and death penalty reporter for the Houston Chronicle, you'd be like, wow, that's, that's really interesting. And if you put those two together, you'd be like, wow, that's really interesting. And yet neither of those two, which were the actual reasons I initially reached out to you are even the slightly most interesting part of your resume. I mean, to be, to be blunt, you spent two years in prison and Albion correctional facility in, in upstate New York. Uh, you were, addicted to heroin you were selling heroin you attempted suicide jumping off a bridge hit a tree instead did not die because you're here doing this podcast <laughs> your background is fucking bonkers crazy insane inspiring preposterous and i want to start by asking you do you get tired of telling the story um you know that's it's a, that's that's an interesting question there's certain parts of it that it's it's like i feel like there's certain things I end up getting asked a lot, but I also find that the more that I tell it sort of the more I think through parts of it myself, like, you know, I get asked a lot, like, how did you, how did you get sober? Like, how did you manage to actually stay off of drugs? And I, I feel like that, like certain questions like that, the answers sort of grow over time. I come to understand them better the more I retell it. But of course, also, I mean, to me, one of the most rewarding things is when um when people who are like currently in prison or currently in jail uh ask me these kinds of questions about my story and just seeing their responses and um you know i i was in a i was visiting a jail in uh san diego it was a women's jail and they asked me like what does a reporter do and they were really curious about what that involves and 
I started telling them about like some of the work I've done and how some of the impact that it's had in changing conditions in Texas prisons. And they were just so inspired by that. And it was like telling my story in those situations is just super rewarding to be able to show people that there is a life after all of this or there can be and that there's hope. I, I mean, it must be amazing because I, I just think um, in my career as a sports writer, numerous are the times that some baseball player, some football player would rightly say, what the fuck do you know about hitting a fastball, right? What the hell do you know about draining a three-pointer with 40,000 people watching and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. What the hell do you know? You have lived the life you cover. How does that impact your coverage ability having gone through it all? I mean, I think that I, I know questions to ask that maybe uh, someone who hasn't been through it wouldn't know to ask. Like, I just know things about how prisons tend to run and, you know, the ways in which officials might try to sort of skirt the truth. So I think in that sense, it gives me an advantage. But I also think it, it gives me a lot of credibility with, uh, with lawyers, with, you know, people that have been in prison or that are in prison. Like they, they know that I understand where they're coming from and what they're going through. So I think it's also helped in terms of, uh, sourcing. But, you know, I mean, I'm also, I think I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that people in prison are people and that hasn't, always been the case in crime and prisons coverage. You know, I think generally people writing about these topics are more cognizant of that now than than if you look at reporting from like 20 years ago when they were just, I, I think, covering people in prison as these like horrible criminals that are almost dehumanized. And I, I think there's more awareness that that's not accurate or not the full story in a lot of cases. Um but I think I, I came into it with that understanding. You wrote this piece in uh, September 23rd, 2018. Toothless Texas inmates denied dentures in state prison for the Chronicle. Your lead was for the better part of four years, David Ford has not had much in the way of teeth. When he first came to state prison, the Houston man had just enough molars to hold in place his partial dentures. Then he lost one tooth to a prison fight and the rest to a dentist. Now five years into his stay, Ford has no teeth at all and no dentures. And despite his best efforts and insistent uh, requests, he's been repeatedly denied them and told that teeth are not a medical necessity. In the Texas prison system, toothless and nearly toothless inmates are routinely denied dentures and instead offer blended food, often regular cafeteria meals simply pureed. So do you feel like as a person who went through the system, not the Texas system, but went through the uh, prison system in America, a story like that might have a greater impact and a greater calling for you? Then if it's just Joe Schmo, 23-year-old out of college, first job is covering prisons for the local paper. Oh, yeah, entirely. I mean, first of all, like, I, I had to struggle with trying to get dental care, and I didn't need dentures, but, you know, just getting dental care at all, uh, that was a very relatable struggle for me. But also, when I started reporting on that story, um, I had a few editors and, you know, fellow journalists sort of be like, how are you going to get readers to care about whether people in prison have teeth? Like who, how are you going to get people to care about that? And, you know, I just, I kept reporting it for a year, but even the advocates who, who, you know, are advocating for prisoners rights and, and working in these spaces were kind of like, this is not even something that we thought to address. Cause it's, it's so accepted that these sorts of things happen. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it did. 
I mean, obviously it spoke to me in a way that it didn't to other people because no one covered it before. Is there a point when you're reporting a story like that? Because obviously these prisons are they're trying to save money and they probably don't really give a shit. Um, do you have to fight through them not wanting you to do a story? Like, is there a point in pieces like these <laughs> when they're like, we don't oh want you doing God. this? So this is like my life. <laughs> um, but so actually the, the prison system has not tried to be like, don't write that story. The most common thing that I get with, you know, that agency and many of the other agencies I cover is, is, you know, spokespeople off the record trying to tell me it's not a story. I don't think that happened with that particular story, but just in general, that's the most common approach is for the spokesman to come to me and be like, Oh, this thing you're writing about, it's totally not a story. Um, as if that's going to dissuade me from writing about it. Um, that has never worked. I will write the story anyway. And, you know, sometimes I get, you know, the angry calls the next day at seven in the morning where I'm getting yelled at or something. But there's there's always pushback. It looks different based on, you know, what agency I'm covering or in what way they're trying to, you know, push back. I mean, sometimes they just go to, um, you know, county legislatures or something and try to... Uh, discredit my reporting there. I mean, it's, it's, you know, there's always pushback. You're holding people in power accountable. I love, um, I always love when like the 26 year old publicist, like Mindy with an eye is calling you and telling you, yeah, we really don't think this is a story. Oh, you know what, Mindy? I never thought of it that way. Thanks for explaining. (laughs) Now I'm not going to do it. You're right. You're right. Well, it's funny because, you know, in, Criminal justice stuff, it's, I've never, I'm never going to run into Mindy with an eye. It's all, right. most of the spokespeople I deal with are, you know, former reporters who are mostly males, like, you know, forties or fifties. It's a very clear demographic that doesn't seem to necessarily match up to what spokespeople are in other beats that you might cover. Um, but it's just, it's just, you know, it, it's different to deal with, uh, you know, to deal with some, you know, condescending older guy versus like Mindy with an eye, you know? Right. I mean, recently we've been, you know, in the news, much in the news has been sort of at the border and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people being locked in cages. And I think, I think the reaction opponents were looking for was, holy shit, look at these, look at these images. These are going to drive you crazy. And I think it's amazing how many people are completely unbothered by it. And I wonder if you, you mentioned sort of oh, a my story. God. I've had, I've been struggling with this all week. Like I just wrote a story about this guy who in, in a Texas prison who's mentally ill was having a schizophrenic episode. They left him alone, unattended in solitary confinement with a spoon and he gouged out his eyes. And yeah, it's this. astonishing the responses on this. Like I have these emails and like tweets and of people just being like, Oh, well, you know, if he's the kind of guy that was going to gouge out his eyes, what are they going to do? Like, medicate him properly. Supervise him properly. Like, I feel like it's a bare minimum that, you know, one might expect that corrections officers would consider it part of their job to make sure that inmates leave alive and with all of their body parts. Actually, the lead to your story, which was really good, it ran a few weeks ago, was a few days ago. When the guard found him, Miguel Carrera remembers he was crawling around on the cell floor looking for his eye. He just pulled it out himself. During a long night at an East Texas psychiatric prison, the 20-year-old had been left apparently unsupervised along, alone with the haunting voices of his paranoid psychosis. He had a long history of severe mental illness, 
And that morning, he just wanted to stop the hallucinations that terrified him. So he picked up the only tool he had, a plastic spoon. After he finished gouging out one eye, severing all the nerves and connecting tissues, he started on the other eye. Now he's permanently blind. First of all, uh, me serious, the freaking <laughs> writing is great. I mean, like, really great. Like, just pitch perfect. And, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, fucking killer. Um, I mean, are we just a bunch of assholes? Do we just generally, as a population, like, we go to church or synagogue and we say, God bless you, and we hold the door for an old lady and maybe we buy someone a meal? But do we really give a shit about Miguel Cabrera because we just assume he's some piece of shit and we don't actually care about him? Is that what we are facing as a society? Well, I think it's, I mean, I think it's more nuanced than that. So, I mean, when I get these tweets and emails, like that's not the majority of the responses I get. And I know that part of that's because of who my followers are and they tend to be people that are interested in prison reform. So I'm, I'm probably, you know, overwhelmingly not getting those kinds of nasty tweets. But, you know, I think part of it with prisons is that, uh, it's, it's so easy to ignore what's going on in there because it's so hard to get in. You know, your average person, can't just, you, you know, you, you, it's really hard to find out something like that this guy pulled out his eyes. It's hard to find out that like dudes don't have teeth or that it's a widespread problem. And even if you do, like so many of the reports I get from prisons are impossible to verify. Like an inmate will tell me something and I'm like, I totally believe you, but there's nothing in writing. There's no video footage or they won't release it. And that just makes it really hard to report these things in a manner that people will believe because unfortunately people don't believe in mace, you know? I mean, it's, I, I understand the, the thought process behind that, but they're not considered credible sources and it requires additional corroboration. And I think that makes it really hard to get their stories out there. It makes it hard for people to actually know what's going on. I mean, this actually isn't the first time that someone's gouged out their eyes in a Texas prison. Um, there's a guy on death row who, um, took one of his eyes out in county jail and then the other one in state prison and he ate one of them. And he is still on death row, as in Texas is arguing that he should still be executed despite, you know, apparently being quite insane. That's actually uh, in the Fifth Circuit right now. They uh, they had oral arguments on that last year. Covering this stuff in Texas must be a completely different animal than if you were in like Pennsylvania or New Jersey or it just seems like a crazy state to cover prisons. It's one of few states where there's enough prisons to make it a substantial part of a job. Like if you were doing this in Pennsylvania or New York or like, yeah, there's a lot of prisons, but it would probably be hard for like a major Metro Daily to justify having that be almost your entire job. Um, but we have 104 prisons in Texas, you know, and then we have five juvenile prisons, which are, <laughs> I was going to say a complete mess, but you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're quite troubled at the moment. And, you know, we have one of the largest county jails in the country. Um, so there's just a lot going on. I didn't want to get away from this. The Miguel Carrera story. So because you were talking about how how hard it is to get in prisons, how hard it is to get these stories, how hard it is to get people to verify the stories. Um, soup to nuts. How does this happen? How did this story unfold? So this story actually is based on a lawsuit. But the interesting thing was how I got the lawsuit. Um, like, obviously, the Texas prison system gets sued all the time. And somebody, you know, anonymously sent me a list of all the pending litigation against the Texas prison system. So I went through the list and I was like, oh, this one's interesting. Because normally, you know, I'd have to go look up everything in PACER, um, in, you know, in court, in federal 
court dockets. And that's time consuming. And I catch some of the things that way, but I don't catch them all, obviously, because there's tons of pending litigation. But in this case, I, I was reading through the list and, and this one obviously stood out to me. Uh, so, you know, then I, I, I tracked down him and his wife and they, you know, I didn't, they, I didn't actually interview them for this. Um, we corresponded some, but didn't actually interview them for this. And, uh, I talked to his lawyer and, you know, read through the court filings. And so, so that's how that came about. It was a, it was a pretty good petition to write off of. When you're doing a story like this, are you trying to interview him and the wife? Um, you know, I try to be more cognizant of interview requests when I'm dealing with someone who's extremely mentally ill because I don't always feel like they necessarily can consent in a meaningful way. And I've dealt with this a lot with the guys on death row because, you know, a lot of the guys on death row are quite mentally ill or quite intellectually disabled. And um, sometimes they'll consent to an interview and I'm just like, I, I don't really feel good about using this person's name. I don't think they really understand what they're consenting to. And in this case, uh, it was just sort of the timing of it. Um, I didn't hear back from his wife, I think, in, in time to have uh, interviewed them for this. Uh, we did correspond about it some, though, sort of after the fact more, um, a little bit beforehand. And um, also when it's someone that has, you know, that is being represented by a lawyer, I always try to make sure that I do the courtesy of at least going through the lawyer first. Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, and my son, Emmett. Casey, you must be really excited having your brother back from two weeks at sleepaway camp. I wasn't at sleepaway camp. You weren't? Is that what they told you? Where were you? They sent me to a factory in Beijing where I was fed chicken broth and dried wheat testicles and worked 20-hour days stretching jerseys and hats for 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. That sounds terrible. I mean, I made 14 cents a day, but I've got to tell you, the stuff is terrific. Every stitch done with passion. Every number applied with heart. Just go to 503-sports.com to see all my amazing handiwork. I'm calling the police. My career has been largely as a sports writer and you came up as an athlete and I, I've, you know, I've been reading through your stories and the different articles and the different interviews you've done when you talk about sort of how you went from being a high level, high level athlete to being a heroin addict and, and also selling heroin to being in, in jail. I am of the theory that we do kids not that great of a favor by immersing them in a sport and making their life a sport and kind of turning them into these robots who at age nine, we're talking about them going to the Olympics instead of taking them to build a bear um, and that it does something to kids. But is that not your saga? No, I would agree with that. Um, I, I think that I was probably already kind of obsessive and a perfectionist. And I think that being in something like skating probably accentuated those traits. And then, I mean, I ended up getting into heroin in part because uh, when my skating career fell apart, I just fell apart. You know, I mean, I was leaving school at, 10 or 11 every day to go to the rink and train. And I would be there till, you know, six or seven at night. So skating was my entire life and my whole identity and what I saw as what would be my entire future. So when I, and I, and I was skating pairs. So, you know, the guy throws you around and it looks dangerous and shit. And, um, you know, when he decided to sort of branch out and find a different partner, I just fell apart because there's so many more, uh, women than men in skating that, you know, he could find a partner easily and I couldn't necessarily. And, you know, I think that, I mean, I hadn't really developed any sort of life or sense of self or, or sense of 
what my future might be other than skating. So when that suddenly seemed to disintegrate, I just fell apart. Whenever I'm watching like the Olympics, just as an example, or like I read a story, do you remember the skater, maybe you even knew her, Debbie Thomas? Yeah, I remember her. I didn't know her, but I mean, I remember right. the story, yeah. Like I, I read some story a few years ago about her and she ended uh-huh. up having severe, severe battling, severe mental illness. And she lives in a trailer park. And, you know, she was a, a medical student at Stanford. And yeah. it seems like there's something, it's kind of a mind fuck to take a kid and say, okay, or a, per, a young person and say, here is your goal. This is your goal. Your goal is to get to the Olympics. We're going to make you an Olympic athlete. Then take this kid away from friends, take this kid away from the normalcies of life. Can't have ice cream because it's fattening. Can't do this because blah, blah, blah. And there's your life for the next X number of years for one goal. And even if you achieve that goal, it it comes and it goes and it's over or you don't achieve it. And your whole life ambition is a failure. It just seems like a major, major mind fuck to a human being. Yeah. But I think especially at that age, because if you don't have an existing sense of self or who you are at all before going into a sport like that, then that just becomes everything. And sports like that end, you know, like you, you get to an age where you're not competitive anymore. And this is something that a lot of skaters I've talked to struggle with, you know, not to say that like everyone's parents are like forcing them into this or something. And, you know, mine didn't, but I mean, if, if, I mean, that's the culture. And if that's what you grow up as and you're a skater, then you have to have some reckoning when you're, you know, 25 or 30 about like my whole life has just ended. And what do I do now? Right. So you went to Rutgers, then you transferred to Cornell. You were mm-hmm. arrested at Cornell. Try committing suicide. I mean, you have this crazy, 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 crazy freaking life that points to a million places, not journalism. You know, like <laughs> it's like put on, put a thousand scraps of paper in a hat and say, what's going to happen to Carrie? And maybe one piece of the paper says Houston Chronicle crime reporter, you know, <laughs> and about 400 others of them say prison and dead. Yeah. How did this path actually happen? There's a lot, I guess there's a lot of answers to that, but sort of one clear point is like how I got my first job in journalism, I guess. Um, and you know, when I got out of prison and I was, I guess I was still on parole at that point. I was living in upstate New York in the country, like in a town with like one street light and no bus system. And, um, you know, I just, I really didn't know how I was going to start a life again. You know, I was, um, you know, I didn't have a degree, I didn't have a job, didn't even have a license. Um, and someone from the local newspaper, which is an alt weekly called the Ithaca Times, uh, came out to interview me about, uh, conditions in the local jail and women getting boarded out, which is when there were too many women, they'd ship them off to other counties. It's just a shitty situation for a number of reasons. Like it makes it harder to get in touch with your attorney and things like that. So this woman is writing about that and she interviewed me. And then afterwards she was like, Hey, you know, I Googled you and I read some of the stuff you written. Cause I, I've written some for like the college newspaper. And she was like, I've, I've read some of the stuff you've written. If you, you know, want to try writing for us at all, feel free. So I started covering town board meetings in a town with like 5,000 people. And uh, I covered a lot of arguments about, uh, backyard chickens and things like that. Uh-huh. Um, chickens are very contentious, by the way. People, will, people yeah. will get really mad over whether you can have chickens in your backyard. You don't got to um, tell me that. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, you know, and so then from there, that sort of developed from freelancing into a full-time job. And, uh, I stayed there for, 
I guess somewhere around two years. And then, uh, then I found out that that editor was planning to leave and I really loved her and she was leaving. So I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'll start applying for things. And I applied at the New York Daily News, which was for like, you know, sort of aggregating and writing listicles type of shit. Like it was an entry level job on like a new team that they were creating to do, uh, more digital stuff. And, uh, it, I didn't think that I would have any chance because they had, you know, my only experience was at this very small alt weekly. Um, but Bob Shield hired me and it was, I mean, it was really great of him to take a chance on me despite the felony, which he never even mentioned in the interview. Like I went in day one being like, I literally don't know if he didn't Google me. Like, I have no idea if he knows that I have a felony. <laughs> like, I was like, is he going to find out and fire me on day two? Um, and, but he did know and just hadn't brought it up. And I stayed there for about a year. And then I applied to the Hearst Fellowship, which is a two-year fellowship. Um, and the first year was at the Houston Chronicle. And then I convinced them to just hire me midway through and stayed. How are you being a journalist and also sort of fighting through your demons and sort of overcoming where you've been and what you've been going through? I mean, you know, that's a, that's a process, obviously. I think it sort of looks different, you know, now than it did five years ago. You know, I'm, I'm I, I've been really lucky that I haven't had a lot in the way of cravings for heroin. Um, but you know, I mean, I've been through a lot of dark shit. Like there's sort of, a, there's a lot of trauma to work through. Like aside from having been in prison, there's obviously all the awful things that happen in 10 years of addiction before that. You know, I mean, I was living on the streets for a little while when I was 17 and like, you know, prostituting in Chinatown of Boston. Like there's, there's a lot of sort of dark shit to work through. And I think for me, one of the things that's helped is um, being able to feel like I've taken all these awful things in my life and hopefully made something good out of them. Like I've, I've, it's helped in my prisons reporting and, you know, I hope that I can tell stories for people that were in the places that I've been and do so in a way that is meaningful and, you know, maybe has impact. And, you know, I, I know that we say like journalists give a voice to the voiceless and, you know, I, I sort of hope like that's, I don't know, some sort of, redemption for me in a sense. And I think that helps in terms of dealing with all this dark stuff in the past and dealing with the obsessions that go along with having an addictive personality. But you know, it's a process. I wanted to ask you about something that I'm really fascinated by because I've never done it. And I actually applied once to do it and I did not get a quote unquote ticket. You have covered uh, executions. You wrote a piece. Actually, I thought it was freaking, I mean, really freaking good. It's, the headline was it's from uh, June 27, 2018. Burn in hell for eternity. Houston serial killer Danny Bible executed Huntsville. First, if I were doing a movie, if I were casting a movie, if I were writing a screenplay about a death row inmate, I would name him Danny Bible. I mean, that's just like, <laughs> you know, right? your lead was shaking from Parkinson's tremors, voice quavering as he mutters, it hurts. Houston serial killer Danny Bible took his last gasping breaths on the gurney in Huntsville before closing one eye, snoring and falling forever silent. I, I mean, that's so good. And then he offered no final statement Wednesday night, but protesters outside shouted angrily into a megaphone defending the aging four-time killer. After in a quiet conference room above the warden's office, 
the family of one of Bible's victims offered, offered a final word. Danny Paul Bible is a vile and evil person as ever would drawn breath, said Larry Lance, whose sisters fell prey to Bible's wrath in 1983. We were glad to have witnessed him draw his last breath. I know that he will burn hell for eternity. Um, what is it to covering an execution? What goes into it and what is it like? So the thing that, that struck me about covering these is sort of how routine it is. I mean, this is Texas. There's a lot of them. All of the officials involved have their, you know, routine down. Uh, it, it, it's not, it doesn't, it's not treated as if it's something like remarkable or anything other than sort of a normal day at work. I mean, cause this is Texas. Um, but you know, basically you get there as a reporter, you get, you get to Huntsville couple hours beforehand and then you wait in an admin building where you have uh you know you have outlets and you can get on the you know you can get on your computer and start pre-writing your story and you wait there's usually pen some sort of pending litigation so you're usually uh at four not sure if this is going to happen at six or if it's going to get pushed back to eight or nine or you know if the guy's going to get a last minute reprieve um so you sit there with the other reporters and wait for the call to come in saying that everything's ready. And then everyone walks across the street to the walls unit, uh, which is one of the oldest prisons in the system. And it's called the walls unit because it has these big brick walls instead of having a fence around it. And it's like right in the middle of Huntsville. So you walk over there and then you wait in this room with it. It's like an office room and there's some desks in it and you're usually there with the defense lawyer um, and whatever friends of the condemned uh, prisoner are coming and it's, you know, quiet and awkward and you're just, you're waiting as they're putting in the IVs. Like that's what you're waiting for at that point. And sometimes it's five minutes and sometimes 20 minutes. Um, and then you all go into this room. Uh, it's a pretty small witnessing room. And there's one for the inmates, family, and friends. And then there's one for the uh, victims, family, and friends. And, um, you know, the, the reporters are split between them. And then, you know, you, you watch the guy say his last words and, you know, tell the warden he's ready. And then, you know, you watch him die. It takes 20, 25 minutes usually with the current combination of drugs that they're using. Um, and you know, how, what, what it's like watching that sort of varies based on, uh, you know, based on who's there. I mean, to me, one of the hard parts is, is watching crying families, um, whether it's the inmates family or the victims families. Um, and you know, so those have been the ones that have been hard for me. I've also not, I have not so far actually um, witnessed any executions of people that I had been corresponding with regularly because um, a number of the guys on death row, I've, you know, written about their appeals or I've um, done like I've been in contact with them for like feature stories or just tips or things about the conditions. Um, so, you know, I, I feel like that could be different if it's if I'm watching someone that, you know, I've been corresponding with for two years. Um, like Larry Swearingen is, uh, scheduled to die later this year. And he's from Montgomery County, which is just north of Harris County. And he's actually one of the first people that I interviewed on death row like two years ago. So we've been, 
you know, in contact for two years. And, um, you know, that, I mean, that will probably be much harder to watch because it's very real when it's someone you interviewed a few times and, uh, you know, and corresponded with regularly, like questions of like guilt or innocence or like what kind of person he is aside. Like it just comes down to like, this is someone that I've corresponded with quite a bit and talked with, you know, and I think that's a very different kettle of fish than, you know, than Danny Bible, who I, who refused interview requests. Um, so I didn't actually talk to him beforehand, although I did hear from lots of other inmates that they all viewed him as one who had actually, like, truly changed. Whereas, like, Tony Shore, a different serial killer from Houston who had been executed a few months earlier, um, that one, everyone was like, nope, he was still an asshole. He did not change. <laughs> so, right. um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's very different, but it's in some ways, uh, less dramatic than you would think. Cause it's, it feels very rehearsed. It's something they've been through a lot of times. Do you find that the people you deal with, the inmates on death row are afraid of dying? Some of them are, some of them aren't. I mean, most of them would say that they're not. And I think that some of them truly are not, um, you know, but I mean, also like the conditions on death row are, are so bad that I can't imagine having a whole lot of desire to live. Um, you know, in what Texas, it's one of the, well, it's one of the most restrictive death rows in the country and they are, uh, locked down 23 hours a day. They get out one hour a day into what's basically like a dog kennel for their, you know, wreck, but they're in solitary you know, basically their entire lives. And, uh, you know, they're there for appeals, take 10 or 20 years. I mean, there's guys that have been on death row for longer than I've been alive right now. Uh, I mean, they weren't always locked down like this. That changed in like 98, 99, because there was this escape from death row on Thanksgiving Eve of 1998. And there was, uh, seven guys that, uh, they, they, it was like a movie. Like they put like dummies in their bunks and they like used a hacksaw to cut out through the wreck yard. Um, and then, you know, ran to the fences and one of them managed to scale the fences and got outside. Um, but he ended up drowning in a stream nearby. And then the other six did not get out. Um, and afterwards the prison system moved death row and, they, you know, took away their jobs. Like they used to be able to have prison jobs and put them in solitary confinement 23 hours a day. Um, so, you know, and, and also in terms of whether they're afraid of dying, I mean, some are clearly not afraid of it because about 10% uh, of executions are uh, volunteers, which is people who have waived their appeals and said, you know, fuck it, I just want to die. I don't know. Being around this kind of stuff, seeing it, covering it, does it all affect your sort of feelings toward mortality or towards death in a personal sort of manner? Um, hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think I've, I mean, clearly I've always been a kind of dark person. So, yeah. so I'm not, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that it affects my feelings towards death per se, but I mean, it's just, it, it is like seeing the the suffering that you see in covering these jobs and in covering these things, like as part of your job. I mean, that sort of, I think, generally affects your psyche. I mean, 
again, like regardless of like guilt or innocence or whether these are, you know, good or bad people, like it is, it is still just, uh, you know, it, it's still just difficult to, to see some, you know, to hear some of the things that, that these guys have to say, whether they're telling me in graphic detail about their crimes or whether they're telling me about, you know, struggling with mental illness in solitary confinement. Um, or, you know, or whether I'm talking to their victims' families about the ways in which they've been traumatized. I mean, there's just, there, there's a lot of dark stuff that goes with covering death row. Right. Actually, I, I'm surprised I haven't asked you this yet because it's one of those things I really like to discuss. Um, how do you interview, how do you get a person uh, behind bars? Number one, how do you get them to trust you and open up to you? And number two, how do you know they're not full of shit? So, um, in terms of like getting them to trust me, part of that just comes from covering the beat. When they see your name in the paper enough and when they see that, you know, that you tell other people's stories in a respectful way. And when they see, you know, like, um, when they see you get teeth for people, like that, that makes a difference. Um, at one point I wrote a story, um, that ended up sort of being part of an investigation that got, um, that ended with a few prison guards getting indicted and, you know, and, and that sort of thing, uh, makes, actually makes officers trust you more too. Um, cause they're happy to see the problem officers, you know, being taken to task. Um, but, it, but it also, I think helps in terms of getting the prisoners to see you as someone that they can trust. And of course, knowing that I've been there makes a huge difference. And in some cases, uh, there's guys that haven't spoken to the media in 20 years that'll, that'll talk to me, um, because maybe I'm just coming at it with a different angle. Sometimes it's just like, they're really happy to have someone who is asking about maybe conditions instead of about their case. Cause that's not something that, that, uh, the people tend to focus on when they're dealing with, when they're interviewing people on death row. Uh, you know, how do you know they're telling the truth? I mean, obviously you have to do some of the same kinds of verification that you would in, in any, anywhere in journalism. Um, for, for prisons, um, in Texas, a lot of inmate information is protected, so you can't get it, but, um, I can always ask them to send me their medical records, like the denture story. I got, um, I had, I don't know, a dozen or so guys sending me their medical records. Um, and they can send me grievances with the agency response on it. So like the agency won't release the grievances and they won't tell me what they said in response to the grievances, but sometimes what they said in response to the grievances can be, can confirm whatever the inmate is, is telling me. So I'll have right. the inmate send me their copy of the grievances. Um, but you know, also, uh, I mean, there's just sort of the basics, like, do you, do I feel like this person is bullshitting me, you know? And, um, I've also discovered that this is something I learned as an inmate and it has, uh, you know, seems to be true, uh, as, as I'm approaching this all as a reporter that when you're talking about things like prison conditions, like most of the time they're telling you the truth, like shit is so crazy. There is no need to make it up. And I found this time and again, when I was in prison that I would hear these wild stories that I was like, there is no way that shit's true. And then it would turn out to be true. And I feel like that continues to happen, like, with the teeth thing. Like, I was like, there's no way they're blending up their food and putting it in a, you know, in a cup. But, yep, they were. That was true. Right. Um, 
you know, so <laughs> I think, so I think part of it is just that inmates are more, uh, trustworthy when it comes to like reporting on the truth of their conditions than you might assume. But of course it still requires verification. I would say everyone has a money story. And maybe we've already discussed yours as far as from their career, not as far as addiction or, or ice figure skating. Like what is the, what's the craziest moment of your career as a journalist? Oh my God. I don't know. I feel like I have one like every week. <laughs> I, I usually at parties end up talking about, um, you know, I, I, I either end up talking about death row or teeth. So I'm a lot of fun <laughs> at parties. <laughs> yeah. Right. Memo. Don't invite Carrie. <laughs> no. Oh, you're having I, a party. I, Carrie's coming. <laughs> uh, oh, I can't. I'm sorry. Yeah, I got a thing. I got this thing I got to do. It's, yeah, it's big. <laughs> I'll also get drunk and like enthusiastically talk about open records requests. So I have oh, a funny. lot of fun on Yay. multiple levels. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Carrie, I, uh, your story's freaking amazing. I know you hear this all the time. I hate being a cliche, <laughs> but your story's freaking mind blowingly good. All right. Thanks for having me. I want to thank today's guest, Carrie Blakender, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Carrie on Twitter at K-E-R-I-B-L-A and read her work in the Houston Chronicle. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.